0: To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com/dsmplus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks.
1: The word widow, that word almost makes you feel alone. I think that's why, in the beginning, I rejected it. And people would say they would write Roger's widow, and I would say, no, please write Roger's wife.
0: This is Death. Sex and money. I'm not afraid of death. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Is the subject of sex being overexploited by our mass media? And need to talk about more. Where's the money, Lebowski? I'm Anna Sale. Chaz Ebert married her husband, Roger, in 1992. She was 39, a divorced lawyer and mother of two, He was 50, and up to that point, a lifelong bachelor. Roger was already famous. His poetic, populist film reviews for the Chicago Sun-Times had earned him a Pulitzer Prize. He was best known, though, for his thumb whether it was up or down, and for sparring with Gene Siskel on their TV show. Benji
1: the Hunted exhausted me. I don't know, Gene. Your review is the typical sort of blasé, sophisticated, cynical review. I'll take the I, would expect, I would expect from an adult. Well, you're wrapping yourself in, in the flag of children, and you're I'm wrapping saying... Wrapping yourself in the flag of the sophisticated film no, critic. Boredom. Seen it all. No, boredom. No,
0: boredom. Gene Siskel died in 1999 of a brain tumor. Three years later, Roger was diagnosed with cancer of the salivary and thyroid glands. In 2006, his lower jaw was removed. Roger eventually lost his ability to speak and to eat solid food, but he kept writing, reviewing, and tweeting through hospital stays, rehab, improvements, and setbacks. Chaz Ebert was right beside him throughout.
1: Do you want the walker? Yes or no? Do you want the walker? No. Okay, then let's get, let's.
0: You see that in a new documentary called Life Itself. It chronicles Roger Ebert's life and their life together until he died in April of 2013.
1: The first time I saw a clip of Roger in the hospital, I gasped because I did not know that he was that. I mean, he looked sick. Hmm. But then you see that he has the same twinkle, he's the same Roger, and you see all of his uh, life-affirming
0: qualities. What's it been like touring the country and talking about your husband and your marriage and his death as you've introduced this movie to the world? You know, in the beginning, uh, Anna, touring
1: the country to talk about Losing Roger and um, to promote the movie life itself was a little surreal. It was a little painful in the beginning. But I, I love talking about Roger, mm-hmm. and it's, it's sort of cathartic because it gives me a chance to relive the, the good times with him and the, the times before he was sick and not just the times when he was ill, Mm -hmm. but it also allows me to sort of reflect on the grace of the time that he was ill because he was so, the only word I can think of, he was so joyful. He Mm -hmm. really accepted everything, and it made it easier to live through those times.
0: I want to talk about your love story. Roger wrote in his memoir of you she fills my horizon. She is the great fact of my life. She has my love. She saved me from the fate of living out my life alone, which is where I seem to be heading. The film reveals that you two met in AA. That's correct. What do you think sharing that, sharing going through the process of, of sobriety, recovery, how do you think that played into the early days of your relationship?
1: I tell you, I think it was a a gift because when you are someone who is sober and you're very grateful for being sober, you realize it. it that's a process that increases your compassion for other people. It really helps you to minimize um, the small talk, and you're more willing to talk more openly and honestly with someone about things that are important in life. And so when Roger and I first met, um, I think we fell right into a a conversation that turned out to be our lifelong conversation with each other that very first night. He was so charming and so smart and uh, so funny and just sort of no BS kind of guy. And I, I really I was attracted to that. Is that how you thought of him before meeting him? No, I did not. <laughs> I have to be honest with you, Anna. And it it still pains me to say this. But before I met Roger, when I used to watch he and Gene Siskel on the TV show, I actually sided with Jean most of the time. Uh-huh. And I thought that I don't know. There was something I thought, I don't know why I did. But once I met Roger and discovered what a great guy he was, of course, he became my favorite. Did you think he was a bit of a loudmouth
0: before you met him?
1: No, 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 no. That's not what I thought. You know what I thought? I thought that he... I told him that... Oh, God, I hate saying this. I told him that I thought that he... Let Gene beat up on him too much and oh. that I thought that he should
0: fight back more. Yeah. I mean that's really beautiful that even before you knew him you were his advocate, you know? <laughs> yes. You're like, come on, Roger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> had lived full lives before you met he'd become famous he'd won his Pulitzer Prize you'd been a civil rights activist you'd married and raised two children become a litigator were you surprised that this was the guy that you were falling for
1: I was surprised only in the sense that you know he was of a different race Uh but um I don't know if I was surprised I mean some years before, some of my friends would have been surprised. Uh, Wait, what do you mean? When I was in college, I was the um, the head of the Black Student Union.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I was in college in like the late 60s and um, very early 70s. And so I also participated in, in marches and, you know, I would go, to college campuses and, uh, you know, speak on the same card as like uh, Angela Davis and uh, Shirley Chisholm. And, you know, I marched in um, when Dr. King, not in Washington, but when Dr. King came to Chicago, Chicago. my dad and I marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. So I was an activist. And um, so I, I think the people who knew me then would have never thought that I would marry someone who was not black. Yeah. I'll just say it that way.
0: Did you feel comfortable falling in love with a white
1: man? I did. I felt comfortable falling in love. But when it became serious and I knew we were going to marry, I did talk to my mother about it. Mm-hmm. And I asked, what do you think people would say? And she said, it doesn't matter what people would say. What 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 do you say? What does your heart say?
0: That's what you listen to. Yeah. And your heart said, I love Roger.
1: My heart said, I love Roger. And I think that there was always acceptance right from the beginning. And my family accepted him right from the beginning as well, Mm -hmm. as far as I knew. No one ever expressed anything. And the one thing that I also did was I made sure that Roger made his own friendship with my son and daughter. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to stand in as the intermediary because I saw when people uh, are blending their families, um, if, you, if you start out as the intermediary, that's the role you have to play forever. And I didn't want to do that. And so right from the beginning, he and my son and daughter became friends. And so when their children were born, he was the grandfather right from the beginning In the movie they call our granddaughter Raven, his step-granddaughter, he would have hated that term. It was always just his grandchildren.
0: I just remember being so young and watching for the first time so many movies and him sort of explaining to me, you know, what's important about this one or this is a really great movie, you know, all of this stuff. I just, those experiences um, mean a lot to me. Coming up, Chaz Ebert talks about how her marriage changed as Roger neared death. He talked about the oneness
1: of the world. And that, and believe me, that is not how Roger spoke. He was very much a, uh, you know, Darwinian Mr. Scientific. That is not the way he spoke. Talking about the oneness and talking about being able to experience the past, present, and future simultaneously when he would go to this other place.
0: Since the start of the show, you've been sending in your stories about death, some about personal losses, some about confronting it day in and day out. Ben Youden wrote in from Cincinnati. He's 34 years old and an orthodox rabbi and hospice chaplain. He said he didn't plan on working around so much death, but it just happened as he served residents of a retirement center. We should be the ones to care for them in their last hours, not strangers. To be honest, it has been an incredible journey, and I've experienced parts of life that most people my age are terrified of. I want to hear more of your stories about loss, specifically about funerals. Send an email, or even better, a voice memo from your smartphone about a funeral that changed your life. Send it to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, another sort of life-changing moment— when comedian Chris Gethardt started dating Hallie Bullet, he fell hard. And suddenly was interested in interior decorating.
1: He's like, okay, I have not had my stuff together, but you're giving me a chance. Look at all these frames and all this bedding, huh? I really want to work hard for you. <laughs> it they really like, had that.
0: I mean, I could tell. I was like, oh, he went out and bought new bedding. Like, he's like, don't be trying to like... I didn't want her to be in my
1: house with all my unframed <laughs> posters and my crappy bedding.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Chaz Ebert stopped practicing law when she married Roger and ran the business side of things for him. They worked side by side throughout their marriage. As Roger became sicker and was only able to communicate through a computer, Chaz's role expanded. At some point, he
1: asked me to be his voice. So we would do some things on the computer and then he would say but i want you to say this it's important for you to say this part you know and so we when he was very sick it felt like we became one person there i didn't feel the boundaries that you feel with two people and i know those boundaries so well because when he got better and he got stronger those boundaries were resurrected huh. and i became my own person again and he became his own person But the period where we became one was a very interesting period when I think back on it because I didn't realize that that's what was happening. I don't even know how to explain it. But I actually did feel him
0: in my soul when we became one person. What changed between you two when he he was no longer able to talk to you with his voice?
1: Almost nothing because... Roger and I developed almost a, a mental telepathy. Mm-hmm. We were so in tune with each other that we actually could speak to each other without words or without even being in the same
0: room. Like a deep ability to understand what he was prompting, like he want, what he wanted to communicate? I don't know. To me, I actually heard his voice
1: in my head. Really? Yeah. And I know that happened sometimes um, when he was in the hospital. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would call the hospital and I would say, oh, my God, he is so cold. Will you please go in and put the warming blanket on him? And the nurse would come back and say, how do you know? Did he call you? And they would say, well, he couldn't call you. He can't speak. And I said, I don't know, but he just told me he was cold. Hmm. See, I... You know, I have to tell you, I knew you weren't going to ask me just the standard questions. I just knew it, and I had a little <laughs> trepidation because I know I'm probably going to say things here that I probably
0: shouldn't say. But well, let's let's actually pause and talk about that a bit because I, in thinking about our conversation, I was wondering where those boundaries are for you, because
1: no, the, you know what, I'm going to tell you, and there are there are none, and that's why I was uh, a little you no. Know, you can just ask me anything and and if something gets too hard or too
0: uh I I I'll tell you. Okay. All right. Yeah. When was the last time you you heard his voice in your in your head? Mm.
1: Very recently. He still talks to me.
0: Yeah, he does. You feel his presence. And you hear it. I mean, you hear it.
1: Yeah, I do. You know, Anna, I have to, and I say this, I don't know why Roger and I were brought together. I do feel that there's something, it almost feels like a destiny to it because there are some parts of our getting together that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and our bond was so strong that I, that I wondered about it. I mean... It, And now the fact that he still is in touch with me and communicates with me, uh, that's also, I mean, it's a wondrous thing.
0: Does that make you feel less sad?
1: It does. It's very comforting because he lets me know that he is okay. He's more than okay. He is blissful.
0: Because when he was nearing death in in the documentary, it shows that, He he died when he was ready to go, and and you were quite ready for him to go. That's correct. And do you feel like that it's been reassuring to know that he was ready? It is so
1: reassuring. It just makes me smile to know that he is this—I don't know what he is. I don't know what form we're in, but I know that it's something— That's comforting, and it feels so natural and so normal. And I know that there are a lot of things that we um, shut down talking about in our society because we can't—things that we can't prove. Uh, But now I firmly, firmly believe in an afterlife.
0: Did you believe in an afterlife before he passed?
1: I don't know. I don't know what I thought happened after death. I haven't had— this experience I've you know I've lost several family members my mother my father two brothers and two sisters and the rest I haven't had an experience like this like I'm having with Roger where he kind of reports back <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what I thought about the afterlife I have zero fear of death now. Zero. What I do talk about with my children and grandchildren is living. We don't talk about death so much as living and telling them to do, you know, find their passion in life and live it. Because time, you know, we don't know how much time
0: is promised to us. That's Chaz Ebert. Roger Ebert's wife. A little less than a year before his death, Roger wrote a blog post titled Roger Loves Chaz. Her love was like a wind forcing me back from the grave. Does that sound too dramatic? You were not there, Roger wrote. The documentary about Roger Ebert's life and death is in select theaters across the country through the fall of 2014. The complete list is at RogerEbert.com. It's also available for instant streaming on Amazon or iTunes. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botin, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Henry Malofsky, Chris Bannon, Mitra Kaboli, Bill O'Neill, and Jim Briggs. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. If you like the show, tell some other people. Share this episode on Facebook or write us a review on iTunes. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. And again, send your stories about a life-changing funeral to DeathSexMoney at WNYC.org. And thank you again, Chaz Ebert, for sharing your story. I
1: just knew that when I talked to you, I just knew it. I just thought, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like it was a disaster? Yes, because I should have stuck with
0: my script. (laughs) But it's okay. But I I do really think that that you're not the only person who's experienced this when they've lost a partner. Yeah, but most people are smart enough not to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anna Sale. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.